0: If a sow going into hyperphagia is not able to find access to enough calorie sources to supply nutrients to her soon-to-be-born cubs, she can self-abort. Her body will self-abort. So a sow in a habitat that is very dry with very little natural food sources may have one or even no cubs because of that environmental conditions but sows here in our urbanized environment generally always have two to three cubs always because they're never at want for calorie resources as they go into hyperphagia you know going into overwinter so so it's very interesting dynamic because what that does is now we're having this population growth changing at a more rapid rate
1: These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. Four years ago, I bought a new truck for the first time ever, and I was so excited. It was incredible. It smelled good. It felt good. I wasn't constantly afraid of breaking down, you know? It was awesome. But after I drove it for a couple weeks, I do the same thing that I always do, and the backseat started to fill up with stuff. You know, I'm guiding elk hunters and deer hunters, and I'm duck hunting, and I'm fly fishing, and all that gear just accumulates. And pretty soon... I wasn't able to take people with me anymore. And I was embarrassed, you know, people would ask for a ride and I'm like, nah, sorry, man, I've I've got too much stuff with me, but I couldn't put it in the bed because then it gets damaged by weather. So I go to the internet and I'm looking for options and I ended up buying a deck to drawer system. Now this was a, a big purchase for me, but it, it's something that I felt like I needed and, and it looked like it was going to be a good product. And it really was. Decked came out with a new drawer system this year and they've made some meaningful improvements over the previous one. You have almost no wasted space in your truck bed now so you can access the sides of the drawers and then the drawers roll a full 18 inches farther out so you can actually access the back of the drawer even if you don't have a lot of arm reach. There's some really strong tie down points on top that have a 400 pound load rating. So if you're going to haul something like a motorcycle or big coolers or whatever, you can really strap your gear down and make it secure. You can lock these drawer systems so you can lock the drawers or if your tailgate locks, then uh, nobody can access the drawers anyways. So I actually feel like my stuff is more secure inside this drawer system than in the cab of my truck. That's a big deal to me. The, complete deck system is made in America by Americans. And you know that that's something that, that I love and appreciate. They've got one that will fit in any truck or van that's been made in America in the last 20 years. Plus you can go to decked.comslash six ranch and get free shipping, but just being honest with you, they get free shipping to everybody. I also, while you're there, I want you to check out their deco line. So they've got a bunch of different boxes and storage containers that either fit on top of or inside of the drawer system. And those are built really robust. I saw the prototypes at an event this summer. I'm impressed. I'm excited to get my hands on them. I haven't yet. But the, the prototypes were, were super badass. And the ones that, uh, that are in production model, they're available now over at decked.com. So even if you just need a place for some tools or you need a new bow case or, you know, something along those lines, go check that out. And if you're driving around right now and your backseat is just full of gear and you can't haul people around, maybe you should consider uh, looking at the, the full deck drawer system because it's a good piece of gear. It was a good purchase for me and, and I hope it helps you. All right, I'm here with 2G Silch today, and we're going to be talking about the urbanization of black bears. Now, I saw a video of you recently where you're going under a house with a paintball gun that had some lights on it, and uh, you got a great big bore out of there, and there was something that looked really familiar about it, and it brought me back to a project that my friend Corey Arnold did a couple years ago, and... uh, Turns out that you're helping him with that. And you've got all this crazy amount of experience with this specific situation that is uh, it's not necessarily bears becoming uh, feral, but it's similar to that, isn't it? Well, kind of the term we like to use is urbanization, urbanized, because
0: what's happening is they're becoming conditioned to our human food sources. In other words, our trash and attractants. And they're also they're becoming they're becoming habitualized with being around humans. So both those things has had a large impact and change on the behavior of our local
1: bear population. And and they're all black bears here, by the way. Right. Uh, For now, although there was there was a bear in Alturas, California, that showed up on game camera uh, that was pretty questionable. And uh, in one of the there was a hunter who found that bear and asked the state about it because it did look like a grizzly and the state said no we we don't have any grizzlies and he said well i'm i'm going to go after this bear then and they immediately said well don't do that so there there is a question of whether there's a grizzly in california but generally speaking and for the purposes of this conversation we're just talking about black bears even if we talk about them being a different color because as you know black bears can be a lot of different colors And the majority of our black bears here are brown in color or blonde or, you know, many different
0: shades from red to brown. We have actually very few jet black black bears here. Now, when you're talking about what that hunter seemed to think was a grizzly or a brown bear, that's a bit of a dubious claim. And some of our, especially some of our urbanized black bear males, boars, they get so big
1: that they can be easily mistaken for a brown bear boar. Yeah, it it's not all that easy. In Montana where they have black bears and grizzly bears, uh if you're going to go bear hunting, you have to take a test showing that you can tell the difference between the two. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, and they they give you a bunch of pictures to look through and almost nobody aces that because, you know, <laughs> there can be some jet black uh grizzlies And, you know, depending on how they're standing, you might not be able to see their face all that well. You might not be able to detect that hump. Sometimes you can see a, a big hump on a black bear. So it is a little bit more difficult than what a lot of people assume it might be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But that's a very interesting situation because it's been since 1924 that there have been any California grizzlies on the landscape in California. I think that was 1923, 24 was when the last wild uh, brown bear was hunted in the state of California.
1: Well, I'm, I'm sure it's only a matter of time because, you know, we've had wolves come from my part of Oregon, which is in the northeast corner of the state, all the way to northern California. And they, they do it in a pretty quick amount of time. Grizzlies can cover a huge amount of ground. And uh, I think it is only a matter of time until we have a bear that comes from from Idaho into Oregon and kind of works its way back down into northern California somewhere.
0: Well, you know, that's that's a distinct possibility. And there are people that talk about wanting to reintroduce them. But here's the caveat to that situation. The grizzly bear, the California grizzly bear territory was not up here where I am in the high Sierra. It was in the valley, in the San Joaquin and Sacramento valleys. Well, and you have so much urbanization and urban sprawl and then agriculture fills the rest of that space. So it'd be a bit tricky of a situation to see grizzly bears re-inhabit that space. Yeah. Pretty much been pushed out. And, and like I said, their habitat was not high up here in the high Sierra. That was the black bear habitat. And that's pretty much what kept black bears from, from emigrating, you know, to the coastal ranges, which they are in now because they would have to cross that grizzly bear territory.
1: Sure. Well, you, you said you've been working on this, for about 20 years tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into this so i've been a a south lake
0: tahoe resident for 41 years interestingly enough i grew up on maui and i moved as a surf bum and i moved here to be a ski bum when i was 22 years 22 years old and for the first almost 20 years i lived here you rarely heard about anybody seeing a bear in other words once every year or every two years, you'd hear somebody seeing a bear like up at the chart house in the dumpster on Kingsbury grade, but it was very rare. But as we kind of got into the early 2000s, that started changing and I was camping with my family. My youngest son was about a year and a half old. And we were camping in a place called Grover Hot Springs, just south of the Lake Tahoe Basin and a yearling, maybe a little bit older, a bear came through. The campground, and I would heard all the things: get big, do this, blah blah blah. And so I said, "Well, I'm going to see if I can keep it moving on, away from us." And I did all that, and it worked. And I was like, "Whoa, whoa, what?" And it just made it sparked an interest in me that I wanted to learn more and more and more about this species. So that was kind of the very beginning of my study of black bears, and. And as the years pass, I I was just in more and more situations where I was encountering them and being able to uh, observe their behavior. And it got to a point, because I I was doing a lot of hiking in the woods and stuff and around the basin here, so I would have these encounters with them. And then when I would do my little workout walks, I'd be having encounters with them in neighborhoods, getting them off dumpsters, chasing them off dumpsters, things like that. So it snowballed when a friend of mine called me one day and goes, hey, there's a bear under a building next door. Do you think you could get it out? I said, well, yeah, sure, I'll try. And I literally climbed under the building. And it was, under the building was, sometimes they can be very different. Sometimes you can look under and you see the whole space. Other times it's a labyrinth. You have pony walls and you have little openings that go farther. Well, this was one of those situations. And I climbed under that, under that building with nothing but a flashlight because I didn't know any better. And I'm going through the building, going through the building. And I stuck my head up over a pony wall. And as I stuck my head up, the bear stuck its head up. We looked at each other. I waved my flashlight right in its face. Hey, go on, go on, bear. Just, just so it could give me a second to get out of the way. I popped out of the way. That bear came over the pony wall and boogied right out the, the crawl space entrance. I was like, whoa, that was kind of easy. And again, I didn't have much experience, so I, I had nothing to compare it to. But that just snowballed. When somebody heard that I could do that, people started calling me and asking me to do it. And I was starting to do it more and more. So I gained more and more experience. I learned more safety techniques involved, other tools to use. So you see me with a paintball in that gun. More often than not, I just can be at the entrance to that crawl space and just yell at the bear, yell at the bear and yell at the bear until I see it wants to come past me. Then I get out of the way and it comes on past me. Sometimes I'll use either pine cones or rocks chuck it at them you know it's it, there's a lot of different tools you can do and all, everything i use is non-lethal sometimes i'll use firecrackers if you can throw a firecracker under a building and get it to behind the bear that'll that'll scare them but the paintballs paintball gun's pretty easy because what i'll do is i'll shoot behind the bear in other words i'm trying to shoot the wall around it to push it out because and every situation is different like i said Sometimes I look under the crawl space and there's the bear right there. There's no going under that house with that bear. Obviously that wasn't the situation you saw in that video In the video you saw, I was actually to step into the crawl space and walk standing up, even though I was hunched over. So I wasn't in a 16 to 18 inch space doing an army crawl with a flashlight and a paintball gun in the other hand. Like I said, every situation is different, but, but I've done so many of them now. I'm probably sitting somewhere around 300. I average about, Oh, 30 or so a year, some years more, some years, a couple less. And because every situation is different, you have to assess each situation. When I come on scene, I, as I'm driving up, I, where's the roads? Is there a busy road around? Is there a specific route I want to move that bear? And when I say move that bear in a specific route, it's a wild animal. It's going to make its own decision. But I do a lot of different things to entice it to go where I need it to go. For that bear safety and for any humans in the area as well
1: yeah that's that's fascinating uh i sort of joke uh all the time that you need to be careful with what you let people know you're good at otherwise you might end up (laughs) doing something a lot um yeah i got i got complimented as a kid growing up here on the ranch uh for digging this ditch especially well and I knew that I had I had made a terrible error at oh, that point <laughs> because yeah. that meant there was a lot of ditch digging in my future. But it sounds like you enjoy this. No, I do. And, and that's not just the only thing I do.
0: So I own six electric bear mats. And when I say electric bear mats, it's just basic livestock <laughs> fencing technology with a different application on a mat. Um, and so I will lend those out to members of my community, bear breaks into the house. They need a week or two to kind of give them time to fix that situation and secure that space, so the bear can't re-enter the house or get back into the crawl space. So, I purchase with my own money mats, and I lend them out to my community members for free. I also do a lot of speaking engagements. I have a lot of service organizations, you know, like Rotary Club or Soroptimist. I come and speak at their meetings. I speak at school functions. Last spring, I gave a talk at Sautal Middle School and spoke to all 700 students. It was great to be able to reach out to people and and give that education. I'll have booths that I can, you know, have one-on-ones with people. So education is probably the majority of what I do. Evictions and letting out mats is, that's kind of actually really a small part of what I bring to my community. And I do this completely for free as a service to the community i've lived in for 41 years I'm, I'm very big on on community involvement and community participation and so this is my way of giving back to a community that helped me raise my sons who are both adults now and in my past i've got i've got thousands of hours coaching you sports parking lot duty at school you know field trips i've i've done all that stuff but this is the way i'm giving back now and it, it's just, it's, it's very satisfying. And my community shows me a lot of love because of it.
1: Do you develop that sense of Ohana growing up in Maui? You bet. You know, Lahaina strong, brah. Cause that's where I'm from. I'm actual
0: Lahaina little graduate. So
1: did you have family there that was affected by the fires?
0: I did not. I had a number of my classmates were there living in Lahaina and it chokes me up a little bit. Yeah tough stuff.
1: It it, it does me too. It was, it was a terrible tragedy, but within that there was so many acts of, of heroism and selflessness. I'm very proud of how that community came together to help each other and how they continue to, even though it's no longer in the news. um, Those problems are still very real over there and there's still people who are very selflessly helping each other get through it. Yeah. It's, It's very interesting dynamics of how that all was
0: able to take place, too, because it hasn't been talked much about, but it has something to do with the fact that at one time, all that land above Lahaina was filled with sugarcane and irrigated regularly. And then once they removed all the sugarcane from land, that just all became wild weeds and grasses that are highly flammable. So, yeah, interesting situation.
1: Would you like to see, and I know this is off topic, but would you like to see sugarcane production come back to Maui, you know, to be, to be sure sugarcane production was extremely
0: detrimental to that environment as far as what it did to the soil and all that. I would like to see some sort of agriculture come back to those spaces because until that happens, they're going to continue to have the problems they have. And what's going on is they're having a lot of invasive species of weeds that have come in from other places you know that hitchhike in and they just take off there because it's such an ideal environment for a lot of that stuff. You know the Hawaiian islands are just so susceptible to invasive species be that plant
1: or animal species. I'm deeply concerned about the axis deer populations on Maui, Lanai and especially Molokai. When I was a kid there was no axis deer on on Maui. It was only on Molokai
0: and you know, then obviously somebody brought them over and they've just, it's gone off. But, but on the flip side, when I was growing up in Hawaii in the seventies, you never saw turtles never oh, huh. because it was about 1970 that they, they made it a law that you couldn't hunt turtles because it used to be that they just sit on the shore and just shoot them as they're swimming through the water. And so it really had a, a harsh effect on that population, but boy, they sure came back really well when I was there for my, for my reunion and, in 2018, my 40-year reunion for Lahainaluna High School, I was just blown away when we were in the water how many turtles we saw. It was such a great sight, and the monk seals, Hawaiian
1: monk seals, same same. Yeah, yeah. the The monk seals are such a cool animal. It's pretty special to even get to see one, isn't it? Yeah, and and I I've, I've never seen one myself, but now I get to see all these pictures. You see them right, you know, birthing right up on Waikiki Beach. It's like whoa. <laughs> yeah. No, it's awesome. Okay, so what are some things that people don't understand about black bears? Well, black bears behaviorally
0: are very different than brown bears. They kind of get lumped in all together. Black bears have a far more of a, a flight response than a fight response as whereas a, a grizzly bear or brown bear would have the opposite. And that's basically because if you look at where the environments and habitat that those species live in, you know, brown bears, grizzly bears spend a lot of time in the open, whereas black bears don't. Black bears do not like open territory. They like to be around trees because tree is an escape route for a bear. It's a perfect escape route for a black bear. They just go right up it. And that's the very first thing that mama teaches her cubs. At about eight, nine weeks when the cubs are starting to emerge from the den, mom starts immediately putting them on a tree and letting them learn to climb a tree and by 11 weeks they can climb 60 70 80 90 feet up a tree no problem
1: yeah (laughs) and they look so cute i think there's hardly a thing cuter in the world uh than a little tiny black bear cub um when they're about the size of a you know volleyball uh they're (laughs) you know they're just a little fluffy thing with these little legs and these little faces and they're uh, they're comical everything that they do is funny to me i just i love watching bears i think that they're you know easily my favorite wildlife species to just observe because they're always doing something goofy you never know what their next move is um they're they're really fascinating So they've got more of a flight response than a fight response, uh, although they're they're very capable of fighting each other or uh, or adversaries. And, you know, honestly, what what you're doing has the potential to be pretty darn dangerous. Oh, most definitely. You know, I'm not going to lie. There
0: is a high degree of danger in what I do. And I take that into into my thought process every time we do a situation because Boy, I went on a couple of calls this week, and luckily there was no bear in attendance to have to evict because it was such a tight situation. I, I don't even know how I would have done it. Um, you know, Some are a lot easier than others. Some get pretty dicey, but you just got to kind of roll with it. But, but like I said, safety is always first and foremost thought in my mind. When I come on a situation and I'm going to do an eviction, I have three plans. I have plan A, plan B, and then I have the uh-oh plan and i'm always happy when i never have to get to the uh oh plan because you know that means that that wild animal's done something that that i didn't take into consideration or it, you know it it zigged when i was expecting
1: it to zag so it can be a dynamic situation to say the least let's let's talk about hibernation because this is something that i think almost everybody who isn't around bears a lot just flat out gets wrong they think that you know bears go to sleep and you know in in late fall and then they just wake up in the spring and and that's that so talk me through like hibernation torpor uh in sort of what a bear's life is like in the winter time so that's an excellent question
0: hibernation um hibernation is a blanket term it's kind of like you said you use the the word torpor which is more correct terminology although torpor is a form of hibernation But when people think of hibernation, they think of, oh, that animal just goes into a coma for, you know, this many months. And that's not the case with with bears at all. Bears go into a form of hibernation called torpor. And what that means is if they're going into true torpor, they don't eat, drink, urinate, or defecate during that time. They lower their heart rate. They slow down their heart rate they drop their body temperature a little bit but not too much but while they're denning over winter they're still highly cognizant in other words the first time i really wanted to start learning about this i climbed into a under a house with a denning male black bear and i placed a camera on him and i said well i'll leave that camera for 2 weeks and i'll have some video when i get back i came back in 2 weeks i checked the chip it had been filled in 2 days they're super active they're awake. They're asleep. They're awake. They're asleep. And they're they're rolling around and they're touching the ceiling and stretching their arms and doing this. And sometimes they get up and walk outside of the den and walk back in. But I was kind of blown away just how active and cognizant they are. When I climb under a house with a bear to set a camera in the wintertime, they're watching me. They're completely paying attention to what I'm doing. So I usually have somebody else with me to spot. But now, when we talk about urbanized bear behavior, because you know you brought up earlier about how black bears will interact with each other in a uh, aggressive way, and that does happen. Well, him, here in this urbanized environment, it happens far less than you think. And I made a discovery a couple years ago, and I've documented it a couple more times since then, and I believe I'm the only person that's ever documented this, of two very large boars, black bear boars. Denning, under the same crawl space, feet away from each other. Wow. Now, in a wild
1: environment, they wouldn't even want to be near each other. They wouldn't even allow each other to be near each other. And maybe not even in the same drainage. Like, they would want to be miles apart if possible. Exactly. But when you think about the dynamics
0: of of urbanized black bear life, no competition for food sources. There's plenty of it. We've got dumpsters that are unlocked 52 weeks a year throughout town. So they always have access to cow resources without any competition. Our black bear population here in the Lake Tahoe Basin might be one of the highest black bear population densities on the planet. Um, It's estimated that we have possibly four to five hundred black bears in about 180,000 acre space. So what that works out to is about two bears per square mile. So what that also means is there's no competition for mates. There's no Mm. competition for mating sows because there's so many of them running around here. So we have sows that mate with numerous different boars. So sometimes when you see a sow with her three cubs, two of them will be brown and one will be jet black. Which means she could have had eggs that were fertilized by different bears.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, and and that's relatively common among uh several different species. Cow elk, for example, want to be bred by by two or three or four bulls during a an estrous cycle that might only be 15 or 16 hours long. Wow. Uh and there's there's some viability that comes along with that. Now, elk aren't having um twins hardly ever. But that cow because she does have such a short cycle she wants to get bred by as many bulls as possible so that she's going to get the most viable chance of having offspring right and uh yeah that's that's very that's very very interesting um that those sows are are looking to get bred by multiple boars as well and and incredibly interesting that there's less conflict over that resource um for those boars so that they're getting along better i mean that's just That's just incredible. It'd be interesting to know, uh, were those two boars that you found together about the same size? Yes. In the first situation, when I first documented it, we actually, one was
0: tagged. So it was a Nevada Department of Wildlife tag. So they had all the DNA uh, data on that bear. And we collected hair samples, a biologist from, from California Department of Fish and Wildlife and I collected hair samples from the other bear. And they did an analysis because I got I get a lot of people asking me, well, do you think they're brothers or they're whatever? I'm like, well, uh, probably not. And if you had two siblings of different ages from the same cell, they would never know each other. There's no way that they would know that they had the same mother if they weren't the same litter mates. So, but even if they were related at, at that age of an adult black bear, you wouldn't see that behavior.
1: Right. That's uh, that's anthropomorphism, right? That that's us trying to make sense of what an animal's doing based on how we make sense of what people do. Yeah, pretty much. And I'm glad you said that word because I always have a hard time with it. (laughs) (laughs) I have to, I
0: have to bring it up a lot. So I get some practice. So, you know, why we're talking about the reproductive cycles of black bears. I always like to share with people because they don't quite understand that when a sow black bear mates, And those eggs are fertilized. She mates in May and June, but those fertilized eggs don't drop an implant into her uterus until late October or early November. It's called delayed implantation. And what that is all about is it come into the fall when a black bear goes into hyperphagia. In other words, they ramp their calorie intake up by four times. So if they're eating 5,000 calories a day in the summer, come fall, they need 20,000 calories a day. So, If a sow going into hyperphagia is not able to find access to enough calorie sources to supply nutrients to her soon to be born cubs, she can self abort. Her body will self abort. So a sow in a habitat that is very dry with very little natural food sources may have one or even no cubs because of that environmental conditions. But sows here in our urbanized environment generally always have two to three cubs, always, because they're never at want for calorie sources as they go into hyperphagia, you know, going into overwinter. So, so it's very interesting dynamic because what that does is now we're having this population growth changing at a more rapid
1: rate that is fascinating. I had no idea that bears were capable of that. And it makes a ton of sense. And I've, I've wondered that because I, I knew when the bear rut was, and I knew when they were having their cubs and the size of the cubs doesn't seem to be consistent with that length of gestation, right? So I <laughs> I, I'd, I'd definitely wondered about that. Like it, it shouldn't take that much time you know, nine months or 10 months or whatever to make this little tiny bear cub. But yeah, if their eggs aren't dropping until October, that makes so much more sense. And uh, we're, we're coming right up on the time when they're going to be having those cubs. In about three weeks. We're about three weeks out. All black bears give birth the last week of
0: January, the first week of February. And like you said, it's all that time. So their gestation period is not that whatever eight month period between may and the end of january their gestation period actually is only about 60 days because the gestation period does not start until those eggs are implanted into the ovaries it's quite an interesting way for that species to do that you know for the way that
1: that nature nature always kind of figures ways out doesn't it it does it does just like what you're talking about with the turtles where you would think that you know, something is, is almost hopeless. And if you just provided a little bit of space, then that adaptability comes through more often than not. You bet. You bet. And
0: again, while we're talking about cubs, you talk about small, like I said, gestation period from egg to born cub is about 60, 63 days. A black bear cub is born weighing about eight to 12 ounces. So in other words, the size of a soda can, they're blind. They can't hear. And they don't have any fur. They have hair, but they don't have any fur. But what's amazing is how quickly they grow. Because by the time, so they're born at about 8 to 10 ounces. By the time they first start emerging from the den, six to seven, eight weeks later, they weigh a pound and a half, almost two pounds by that point.
1: Hmm. It's it's incredible stuff. That calorie tax must be just horrible for those sows to be producing milk with, with nutrient quality. That is that powerful without the ability to continue eating. Yeah. Well, that's all that stored, all that stored calorie. That's why that's so important to have. Right. And, uh, and bare fat, uh, has has long been extremely sought after, uh, because of those qualities, uh, you know, a- after the fact, right. If you look at, uh, if you look at the, the food sources that were really important to, to early European settlers, to, to Native Americans that lived in, in my area, for example, um, bear was really high on the list because of all of that fat. And it's a really palatable fat as well. Hmm. Interesting. Now that's, I'm not a hunter. I'm not
0: anti-hunting, but I'm just not a hunter. It's just something I never grew up around. Um, so I don't know a
1: lot about stuff, some of the things that you're talking about like that. That's very interesting. Yeah, my my grandma, for example, is in the pie hall of fame. Uh, she's a tremendous pie baker, and she loves bear fat for her pie crust. Um, that's that's number one. So it's always uh, part of my year as a hunter to make sure that I'm rendering out some bear lard so that my my grandma can continue um, making you know the best pies in the world, which I'm very uh, much a recipient of and, and grateful for. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's a it's an it's an interesting thing the The fat that comes off of deer and elk uh, is not very palatable. I, you know, I just cooked a whole deer uh, front shoulder a couple days ago and the fat that rendered out of that during that cook, um, it wasn't any good to eat. You know, it'd really coat your mouth. It didn't have a great flavor. Um, you know, it was largely a, a failed recipe. But it's it's interesting how how we as consumers experience these fats differently. And I think that, you know, because of what bears go through, being such a, a special requirement, where you know these boars need to be able to live off their fat stores all winter long. The sows do as well, and and also tap into that to be able to turn those fat stores into milk to produce cubs. Uh, it's just just amazing. It, it's almost miraculous. No,
0: since we're still kind of talking about overwintering and getting back into the torpor hibernation thing, now. One of the behavioral changes of some of our urbanized bears is they don't go into full torpor over winter because they still can have access to food sources throughout that winter. Because what hibernation torpor really is, it's a way for their body to deal with the fact that there is no access to natural food sources over winter because it's supposedly covered in snow. But with these urbanized bears that rely on human food attractants, you know, i e trash dog food pet foods bird feeders things like that once they become so used to that food source and they realize that they can access it year round uh, you know sometimes they
1: don't go into full torpor right so what time of year are you seeing your bears start to come out of their hibernation or or their torpor well interestingly enough there's a bit of a range just like when they start
0: I know a couple males here in town, a couple of older males that like to start their torpor mid-November, mid to late November, while there's other bears that you see that don't even think about it. I just was in front of a, a male the other day that's still actively day bedding and accessing dumpsters. And it's, you know, that was January 1st. I was looking at them. So, you know, every bear is different. And as far as at the back end on the spring side of it, generally what I see with the with the urban dens that I document is they'll start getting a little more active in say late March, maybe they come out a little more and go back in. But, and then, you know, as we get towards the end of March, March, they start becoming active. But as, as black bears come out of the den, you know, people have this idea that, Oh, they must be ravenous. They just want to go out and go to the buffet and get all you can eat sushi, you know, that kind of stuff. But that's really not the case. What they, what these bears are doing is they slowly work back into you know, their, their calorie intake. When they come out, they're just eating a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. They're not ravenous at all. It's, it's really kind of interesting. It's
1: counterintuitive almost, but that's how it rolls probably because their stomach's not ready for all that food. So, right. So the microbiome of their stomach has a lot to do with what they're even able to eat once they start coming out. So what we find with our bears is they really need to focus on grass when when they're starting to come out of their dens, and you know they'll they'll look at that almost exclusively. They're not looking at the winter kill, the carrion. They're not going out and and killing elk or anything like that yet, um, until they've had grass for a substantial amount of time. And you know my understanding is that that is to get the microbiome in their stomach working properly again.
0: Yeah, well it's it's been my observation that uh, our spring and summer grasses provide. For the natural black bear food sources, close to almost eighty percent of their calorie intake through most of the summer, even believe it or not, people always worry what well, what are the bears going to eat? I live in the Lake Tahoe Basin, and the Lake Tahoe Basin is basically the Garden of Eden for wildlife. There's something like sixty three tributaries that flow into Lake Tahoe. There's water everywhere. There's there's meadows and grasses and. Everything wild animals can need to eat we have here, but people don't quite understand when I tell people that, yeah, grass, you know, summer and spring grasses are a huge part of a black bear's diet. And they look at me like I'm talking crazy and they're like, well, how do they get so big? And I look right back at them and I say, cows and horses. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much all they eat. Look how big they get. Right. You know, people have different perceptions. You know, again, that's one of those miss misperceptions. People, oh, the bears have nothing to eat. As I'm staring out into a forest with pine cones littering the the forest floor, they can eat pine nuts. It's just a lot more work for them. And again, getting back to the urbanization, some of our urbanized bears have almost lost their skill set in foraging for natural black bear foods. Yeah, the grass is an easy one, but when it gets down to brass tacks, you don't see our urbanized bears going out chomping on on pine cones, trying to get to those pine nuts, you see them going to the dumpster because a black bear foraging for food naturally, prior to hyperphagia, would be spending anywhere from eight to twelve hours a day foraging for food to get the the required calorie intake. Well, our urbanized bears they can go in a dumpster and they can get that in half an hour, hmm. and they've and they figured that out. Sure. So we had a bear here in the Lake Tahoe Basin a couple of years ago. Large boar he was close to he was well over five hundred fifty pounds, and it, he went viral because he walked into the King's Beach Safeway and then three weeks later he walked right into the King's beach seven eleven right up to a guy and Because there was so much you know public outcry about it, Fish and wildlife California Department of Fish and Wildlife decided to trap and translocate him now translocation doesn't work very well with bears but they decided to do it. So we've got an almost 600 pound uh, black bear boar that's taken from an urban environment placed about 80, 90 miles to the Southeast out in a, in a wildland environment and they collared him. Well, the collar fell off in about a month. So they kind of lost track of him. About four months later, because this all happened in early summer, about four months later in fall at a campsite, uh, a rural campsite. There was a family camping that a number of children and a bear was coming around and walking around the campsite. Wouldn't leave, wouldn't leave for a couple of days. Finally, the, the camper, the man finally got a little freaked and he, he took a shot at the bear and winged it. He immediately called fish and wildlife, let him know what the situation was. They showed up, they found the bear, they euthanized it. And after they euthanized it, when they got up, they realized what bear it was. And it was that King's beach bear that they had relocated at about 550 pounds and now it weighed about 250 pounds. It didn't know how to naturally forage in a, a wild environment anymore. Wow. It just, it's, its behavior had become so changed that it
1: couldn't swing back. That's sad. Uh, the amount of stress that animal must have must have endured during that time. Right. Um, I'm interrupting this podcast to bring you a little bit more wildlife biology. Across the globe, there are plenty of instances of wild animals making their way out of the woods and into developed areas. Black bears, Ursus americanus, are certainly no exception and have been studied fairly extensively in their excursions across the urban interface. In the Lake Tahoe area, Ph.D. student Jan Mario Cornelis-Clip hell of a name, authored a dissertation titled Spatial and Temporal Patterns of a Generalist Urban Carnivore, American Black Bears at Lake Tahoe, California. This extensive project involved the radio collaring of 27 black bears in the area from 2010 to 2014. In this research, it was found that during 2013, 2014, and 2015, over half the bears spent more than 50% of their time within urban areas. On a temporal scale, this study found that black bears spent much more time within urban areas from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Males and females used urban space differently depending on seasons, where females spent more than 50% of their time within urban areas in April, September, and October. Females with cubs spent more than 50% of their time from June through September, with peak use in June just in time for your kids to get out of school and hit the road to Tahoe for a family outing. Males typically used urban areas greater than 50% of the time in February, August, and December. This study also displayed that regardless of the bear, they all preferred mixed habitats, going back and forth between urban areas and wild areas. Black bears, similar to coyotes and foxes, will quite literally alter their diet to seek out human food due to the high calorie and protein content. But let's say that we padlock all of our heavy-duty welded trash boxes and set up a laser security system around it. It doesn't necessarily mean that bears will stay out of urban areas. A 2013 study conducted by Merkel in Missoula, Montana, found that black bears entering into urban areas was related to apple season and when plants start to produce new growth and was not related to trash availability. Additionally, there was very little effect on wild food availability on urban invasion. So, in a nutshell, by developing land for your beautiful yard, you may be inadvertently creating food resources for black bears. But what does all this mean for management? Bears have been overly personified in many capacities. And regardless of how funny Fat Bear Week is, let's consider the possible problems of bears in urban areas. Bears can pose serious problems to humans when encountered. Female bears will protect cubs. Males can be aggressive. And chances are a fight with a black bear will end poorly. Not to mention, they don't often take kindly to pets. We know bears eat trash, we know they eat fruits and other vegetation from yards, but what can be done? They are wild animals, and they have regulated hunting seasons, and we sure aren't going to stop producing trash in yards anytime soon. The work from PhD student Jan Mario Cornelis-Clip suggests that a community-based approach could be a step in the right direction, where the focus is ideally on removing attractants and supporting a widespread education program. These efforts, although employed in many areas, require support and updating in many places to achieve the best results. While the chance of being attacked by a black bear are low, they're never zero. And managing our spaces to promote wildlife, staying wild, is a key to maintaining the rich biodiversity of wildlife on a national and international scale. So, if I understand this situation correctly you have this incredibly dense population of black bears that is having cubs at a rate that's higher than normal for, for wild bear populations. And, you know, if I, if I were to forecast this a little bit, it sounds like you're in a situation where you're going to have more and more bears every single year. And they're, they're fighting over finding places where they can den, where, where they can find food, uh, during the the spring, summer, and fall, like wh- where does this go from here?
0: Boy, that's a really good question. Um, the, the The big issue is not only is as, as we're seeing this population growth happen, we're also seeing behavioral changes happening at a very rapid rate. When I say behavioral changes, It used to be, you know, three years ago, if you would ask me about a bear getting into a house, I would have said, oh, yeah, they'll go around the house. They look for the open slider, the open unlocked window. They actually go up to front doors and they'll try the doorknob or they'll go down the street trying car doors. Right. Because once they've learned that behavior and mom teaches it to her cubs. So that used to be the norm for breaking and entering bears. Well, now they've started to figure out that oh, if all the windows and doors are locked, I can just bust right through them. So, we're getting these breaking and entering situations, you know, which again causing major damage in a lot of situations uh, to structures. But the other behavior that's changed in this situation with these breaking and entering things is now these bears have become so habituated to be around us that some of them are willing to go into a building with people inside them. Now, think about a black bear and their sense of smell. A black bear knows if there's a human in close proximity or not.
1: And, oh, it yeah. used to,
0: and it used to be, if they thought there was somebody in the house, they wouldn't do it. Now they'll walk in and rock right past people. I've had people, I was sleeping on the couch and I woke up and a bear walked right by me. You know, they've become so comfortable. And that's where that's where it becomes dicey because there's no maliciousness on the part of that black bear. But you put an, you know a wild animal with the tools that animal has to protect itself and that animal weighs three, four, 500 pounds, and you're in enclosed space with a human that's been startled, bad things can happen. Over the last few years, we've seen a number of physical altercations between humans and bears. And every time it happens, you always kind of get the crazies. Well, that person should have known what they were doing. It's their own fault. No, no, that's not always the case, right? You know, there's certain people around here that every time a bear breaks, well, that's that homeowner's fault. You know, they attracted right. that. They did this. So it's like, well, so what? We're not supposed to have food in our houses. We're supposed to create castles. You know, when a bear's busting through a front door, busting through a dead bolted front door, how do you protect yourself against that? So I mean, we have to approach this situation with a common sense situation. So for instance, here in the basin this summer was a, a couple, Bears that were taken out because of that situation. In other words, they were removed from the environment. And boy, again, that's a really big issue. But I have a different viewpoint from a lot of hardcore wildlife advocates when it comes to this situation. I tend to try and think of it more from common sense and from both the safety aspect of the bear and the human involved in human bear conflict issues. Too many people. And and again, this issue is 95% caused by us humans because we keep feeding them. But the people that end up having the bears break in their house or in close physical encounters, they're not necessarily the people, they're making those mistakes. They're just paying for it. They become kind of a victim of of a simple twist of fate, a bad set of circumstances. And like I said before, no maliciousness on the part of the bear. But a bear that's comfortable about walking into a building with people in it, is extremely problematic in the state of the history of the state of california no black bear has ever killed a human being that's a pretty crazy statistic if you think about it but i personally believe that we may see something we may see that change here in the near future because as we have more and more bears putting themselves in such close proximity to humans inside buildings something bad's going to happen
1: yeah and and then the crazies are definitely gonna come out, right so something yeah. that that I really commonly hear because I'm constantly talking about uh wildlife and and posting wildlife videos, a lot of people will say, well, you're in that bear's territory like okay well, yeah, uh bears are everywhere that people, are. And it's always been that way. Antarctica is the only exception. And, you know, we really never settled Antarctica as a species. We just kind of explore it from a scientific standpoint now, but everywhere else that there's people, there's bears. And, you know, we've, we've coexisted for, for the course of, of both of our histories. And there's always been a degree of, of conflict and a degree of collaboration as well. Yeah. Well, here in the Tahoe Basin,
0: when I hear that, when I hear people say that, well, they were here before us, <laughs> my reply is, yes, you're, you're 100% correct, but they were not here before us in the population density that they are here now. So in other words, a natural black bear population density for the land mass within the Lake Tahoe Basin would probably be 50 to 75 bears if they were completely wildland bears living off a natural environment. 50 to 75, and we've got four to 500. Right. That's a huge discrepancy.
1: Now, something that wildlife biologist Jim Aiken discovered when he was studying bears was that they would not use the same den site year after year. Um, and he thought that that was because of vermin, whether it was lice or, you know, ver- various just pests that would be in that den area do you find that these urbanized bears are using the same den year after year or um, are the same den sites being used every year?
0: Well, first of all, any house that ends up with a bear underneath it, it becomes what I call a bear B <laughs> because once one bear has been, another's another will figure it out. They can smell it. But I've doc- again, I've documented. Well, in the video, you saw me getting that bear out B 33. Before this winter, the last four winters, he has overwintered in exactly the same den. Exactly the same den. That's why I was so surprised when he didn't stay in his regular den this year. And he moved on and another bear took his place. So there's another bear I know by the name of G101 that's in B33's regular den. So yes, they'll get over and over. Even day beds out in a natural environment. I have videos of different bears bedding them. You know, Hmm. it's. It's. They're not afraid of sharing. They have no problem. They go, oh, my buddy was here. When you see bears going through my camera sometimes, and I'll I'll put my camera on a rubbing tree or a scratching tree or something like that, and I like to explain to people, when when they see a bear scratching his back in a tree, he's not just scratching his back. He's doing what I like to call, he's signing the forest guest registry, Right. In other words, he's leaving his scent and some of his hair to let whatever animal comes back by know that that bear was there, right? And I, you know, and I've seen a number of different bears do it on the same tree, and it's funny to watch because every bear, raccoon, coyote that walks by that tree stops and smells and checks it
1: out. They all know who's moving through where. <laughs> now, is there a way to to create or stimulate that? Could you put some? Could you take? you know bear scat and rub it on a tree and, and create a scratching tree or you know is there any way to manip- manipulate that you know that that's an interesting question
0: and i can't answer it but um, as a side note black bears here in the basin love telephone poles they'll hmm. scratch them they'll bite on them but what that is is telephone poles are preserved with creosote. And I believe that creocyte smells like a natural attractant to black bears. Like another thing that black bears get into a lot here in the Lake Tahle Basin is hot tub covers. People think they're trying to break into their hot tub. Well, a bear ripped my hot tub cover apart and I have to explain to him. Well, hot tub covers the insulation and in hot tub covering is generally made with formaldehyde formaldehyde to a black bear smells exactly like a yellow jacket nest and black bears love yellow jacket pupa and larva so they like to dig those nests up and so that's why they'll rip into those those hot tub covers
1: that's fascinating uh yeah our our bears spend a lot of time especially in early august they're all about the bugs and One of the things that amazes me so much about bears and their efficiency with calories is that they will tear apart logs and stumps and move giant rocks just to get small amounts of ant larva or or to break into a yellow jacket nest or something like that. And it seems like the amount of effort would take far more energy than the reward of whatever they're eating, but that certainly is not the case. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. You know, black bears have this, again, their sense of smell
0: is so incredible. They smell types of calories. So when a black bear is smelling food, he's separating out fat content, calories, carbohydrate, calories, protein, calories. Usually when a bear goes into a house. And raids the fridge more often than not, it ain't grabbing the broccoli and the, and the cauliflower. It's grabbing the lasagna. It's grabbing the ice cream. It's grabbing the milk. Because all those things are really high in fat content. A friend of mine who I had to lend a bear mat to, uh, bear busted into his garage. He had a, a fridge in there, freezer in there, and he had a bunch of elk meat in the freezer. Bear didn't touch it. He grabbed a frozen lasagna and some almond milk that was in there. And that's because he could smell the
1: fat content. And that's what he wanted or she wanted at that time. You know, they do the same thing when they kill an elk they're not going for the meat otherwise the first thing that they would eat would be the hindquarter or the backstraps uh what they're going for is the liver and the heart and the organ fat um, that's the first the first priority for almost any of these predators that kills an elk or a deer uh, so and that's again just anthropomorphizing if If we were to rate a freezer, right, we might go for the venison um, because protein is, is is extremely important for how we live our lives. However, for a bear, they really need that fat. I find that what a what a bear eats changes a lot throughout the year for you know, whether they're focusing more so on fat or carbs. Do you find that your urbanized bears are are trending towards those those fats and proteins more in the fall than they are in the spring?
0: Yeah, it, well, especially when it comes to certain types of bug larvae. You know that's more into the season so they wouldn't find that in the spring you know that has to you know because like yellow jacket nest for instance yellow jack queen yellow jackets don't even start their nest until they emerge in the spring and so that nest isn't filled with larvae until we get to about july and later so yeah it's interesting stuff how how they work with that and and yeah i, I do agree with you on the fact that they do change their caloric intakes throughout the year but Another thing we get with the urbanized bears is, you know, I like, the, I like to differentiate between country bear poo and city bear poo, right? There's scat, you know, when I'm looking at really good, healthy black bear scat, I'm seeing rose hips in it. I'm seeing grass in it. I'm seeing dark black, which showing that they're eating bug larva for protein, but our urbanized bears, what you see mostly in their scat is wadded up plastic trash bags, pieces of tin foil. I've pulled out full chip bag wrappers out of bear scat. The summer before last, I was out in the field checking a camera and I walked into a meadow and a bunch of turkey vultures flew over my head. I'm like, oh, there's something dead over there. And I went over and, whoa, dead bear. And they had had decimated it pretty good because I had been there the week before and it wasn't there then. And it was pretty beat up. But it was in August and we were having 90, 95 degree temperatures every day. So as I'm looking at this dead bear carcass you know you see all the fur that the turkey vultures pull off as they they go into that bear carcass but spread around with that fur was a ring of trash of plastic pieces around that bear and at first i looked at that and said huh and i started looking around for a trash bag well did did this bear drag a trash bag a mile out into the forest and then it hit me it just struck me and i figured out what it was i went oh my gosh that's the turkey vultures pulling all that plastic out of its intestines. Cause like you were just talking about turkey vultures, they go for the guts because that's where the best nutritional sources, you know, in prey are like, as you said, and so why they were going into eat the intestines and all that stuff, they were having to pull the plastic pieces out of it and they were flipping it, throwing it around. So it was a circle around the bear. And just about a month and a half ago, there was an article in the paper in Colorado. They had to euthanize a sick bear, and when they did a necropsy on it, it's gut was completely stuffed with trash. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, we call that hardware disease with livestock. You know, if they eat, you know, baling twine or something foreign that they're not able to digest and it gets clogged in their digestive system somewhere. Um, it, it can be incredibly expensive to get that out. And oftentimes it kills the animal before anything can be done at all. And uh Yeah. What a, what a tragedy, but also what a strange, what a strange time we live in that, that this is a reality, right? How, how could bears possibly adjust otherwise?
0: Yeah. It's interesting. That's why I really enjoy really my focus on the urbanization of black bears because I'm seeing, I'm seeing the history of bears change in real time, right in front of me. I'm seeing behaviors completely change from generation to generation of bears. Than I know, and it's it's scary at times because I worry about you know the negative effects it's having on these bears. But at the same time, you know encroachments having some positive effects on them. I mean, it's it's a really dynamic issue. It's a very nuanced issue. You know, people think it's so cut and dry. You know, with with wildlife in an urban environment, and you know when you're talking about wildlife that grows to four to five hundred pounds it's a very different situation is
1: the next step domestication i mean i i i I think this is this is probably how wolves became dogs right um they they hung around the hung around the tribe and were able to get some scraps and pretty soon you know they're they're sleeping outside the teepee and pretty soon you've got a i don't know a a chihuahua hanging out with a great dane like I, I'm I'm just fascinated for where this goes next because the, the likelihood is tragedy, right? Right. Uh, right. Is that, okay, we're, we're no longer able to tolerate this type of situation. So now we're going to have to kill a bunch of these bears uh, because we can't move them. They don't know how to live someplace else. They don't know how to be wild bears. This isn't a free Willy scenario. All right. Right. Which, you know, is another great case because you know that 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 whale didn't do well in the wild they had to go back into captivity. they just moved it to Norway so that it was out of the public eye so yeah the the future for this uh is is probably tragedy for the bears yeah and and one thing
0: i I do want to really stress is that you know of this super high black bear population density we have here, the majority of those bears are not what we would consider conflict bears, right generally the con when i say conflict bear the ones that are really you know, doing a lot of property damage, breaking in, um, you know, always trying to, you know, bears that forego the natural meal to get the human access to attractants. Um, It's a small handful, but generally it turns out often, more often than not to be sows with cubs of the year. So she's teaching that behavior to her cubs. And so, so there, a lot of these are learned behaviors and they just keep going generation to generation. You know, that's the cycle. That's the hard part. That's the cycle where you know like some of those animals we've had removed i think there was a couple of sows this year that were taken out of the environment and their cubs were placed in rehab facilities to be re-released out into the wild which is not the most ideal situation but it's better than what those cubs were headed to had you know mom stayed in the environment and and as much as i love bears and love wildlife and, and some other wildlife advocates go after me about this but in my community The safety and well-being of all the members of my community, both the bears, you know, the wildlife and the humans are very important. But the importance of that human safety for me is just a slightly bit higher. So when I look at my community, it's my goal to mitigate any issues that would cause safety concerns to my other community, you know, human community members. But in so doing, we're helping the bears, too. Right. It's, it helps everybody coexist together.
1: Yeah. I, I think you have a, a very, a, a very measured look at this and you know, everything that you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that if, if it doesn't make sense or if people are listening to this and uh, and they're starting to get upset about something, maybe they just need to take a step back and sort of analyze the facts and, and, uh, and then look at what what are the potential outcomes and and how best can we work with what we have uh talk to me a little bit more about the electric bear mats i i di- i did watch a video of you testing one of those i think i think that that's that's interesting and it's got lots and lots of application um for example and this is this is niche but everybody that is uh is going out in alaska out into the tundra stuff like that whether they're you know, camping for for various reasons or hunting, a lot of times they're putting up a small electric fence around their around their tent. yeah, and I don't know. i I really like the idea of this electric mat that, if they step on it, it shocks them, provides a negative experience, makes them not want to be there uh, that's a That's a really interesting technology that I think has all kinds of application for reducing wildlife conflict here in the tall basin,
0: you know, people don't just use electric mats. The mats are easy because you can move them around, right? You can move them from place to place, but there's a number of homeowners that have their houses electrified. When I say electrified, they're just basically putting that livestock fencing wiring in front of their windows, in front of their doors, and they make it so they can take it apart and take it off. They have these like bungee cord kind of things that they can, you can you can just turn it off and, and open the space. So, and that technology, I mean, it's just, Again, basic livestock fencing technology. The, uh, the power unit is the same exact thing that you would find on any ranch that uses electric livestock fencing. Yeah. So the bear mat, what it is, is this, there's two sets of metal strips on there. And the bear has to make the connection between the two to close the circuit, to get the zap. And, and it's totally non-lethal. I mean, you watch me touch that in the video. It's about the equivalent of you working on your car and grabbing your spark plug wire where the engine was running. It would pop and you'd go, ow, and you might swear a little bit, but that's about it. Totally non-lethal. I even have videos of a, of a pack rat on it getting zapped and getting some air and running off. So it's not going to kill anything, but it gets their attention. And once a bear's been on one of those, it knows what they are and it won't touch them again. I've oh, seen bears sure. walk up. I have videos of bears walking up and go, Oh, I don't want any of that. I'm out of here. Yeah. So it's, it's highly effective. It's it's really effective technology. They learn. (laughs) Well, you know, black bears are extremely intelligent. Black bears have an intelligence level almost out of the great apes. And, And so there's three qualities that urbanized wildlife have in common because the three species of, of wildlife that do really well when we encroach are black bears, coyotes, and raccoons. And those three species have three things in common. They're all three extremely intelligent animals. They're all three opportunistic feeders. They can eat a broad variety of food sources. And all three are highly adaptable. And you brought that up before about the bears, but they're all, if you have the combination of those three things,
1: you can do pretty well when humans encroach. Absolutely. And, and humans could take a lot of lessons from those animals to make ourselves more adaptable as well. You think? (laughs) Yeah. So let's, uh, let's conclude this with some advice to people uh, who are listening in, in the Tahoe basin or listening in an area that has urbanized wildlife. What can they be doing better so that we don't create negative situations for these animals? Well, first and foremost, securing human food attractants.
0: In other words, you know, don't leave your trash outside, put it out in the morning of trash pickup, or if you have a, a steel bear box, that's even better to keep your trash in that. Um, any, any spaces like your, your crawl spaces, if there's access to them, make sure you secure them. I tell people that if they, you know, some people think, oh, I'll just roll a rock in front of that. And I look and I go, well, if you roll the rock up there, any bear can roll it away. I'm 180 pounds of average strength. If I can break, get past something with a crowbar, any bear of any size can get past that spot. Um, you know, there's a lots of do's and don'ts about living in bear country and visiting and traveling through bear country. So instead of me rewriting all those rules, I like to guide people to check out Bearwise. wise, bear wise, is a one-stop shop for finding all kinds of great resources on coexisting in in bear habitat and bearwise has been adopted by a number of states wildlife agencies both california and nevada's wildlife agencies just adopted it within the last year and so and what we're trying to do is get to one messaging system of the do's and don'ts in other words instead of every different agency putting out you know, their website, well, this is what we say you should do and don't do. And, and come look at this. Now, we want to direct them all to bearwise.com. That's the best information. This That platform has, it even has templates for city ordinances, county ordinances, HOA rules. It has everything you need. It has downloadable uh, activities for children that you can print and coloring pages and things like that. It's just a great source and their message is well thought out and well-produced and so i like to guide people to that for the do's and don'ts
1: okay well 2g you have uh, a, a fantastic instagram you've got all kinds of crazy wildlife stuff on there uh, you're doing really cool stuff with with game cameras and people can follow along with your uh, with your paintball versus bear adventures underneath houses uh, where do they find that how do they follow along and learn more about what you're doing
0: well on instagram i'm I am at Tahoe2G, all one word, lowercase, T-A-H-O-E-T-O-O-G-E-E. And on Facebook, you can find me at Tahoe2G, two words. And that's pretty easy because you're not going to find too many 2Gs out there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Where does that name come from? That's that's a an unusual name. <laughs> so
0: my grandmother made it up when I was a little baby. When I... My real name is Stefan, and I've never answered that. If you call me Stefan, you're either from the IRS or the police department. Um, <laughs> so I, I was given the name 2G as a newborn baby when they brought me home as a nickname. It stuck, my favorite spelling, and that's pretty much all I've gone through. Now, I did find out there is actually some meaning of, of 2G, even though my grandmother made that word up in our family. But 2G has two different contexts. In Tasmania, the island of Tasmania, there was a tribe of people called the Tugi that the Dutch completely wiped out in the 1600s. <laughs> so in, in New Zealand and Tasmania, you see a lot of business called Tugi Treks or Tugi this or, you know, whatever. And then in Korean, Tugi actually means foreign devil. <laughs> and it was a term associated with the orphans. That were left by American servicemen that were in Korea during the Korean War, so mm. it was kind of a negative context. But so you see, some places have 2G Taekwondo, which is kind of um,
1: like Howley
0: Boy, Howley Boy, yeah. uh, martial arts, yeah. you know, of the Korean style. Huh. But, anyways, yeah.
1: Well, that's that's interesting man i I learned so much from this uh i've I've been around bears my whole life and like i said i'm 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 fascinated with them as a species what what they're doing with this this urbanization uh is is incredible like that's it's so interesting and uh I really appreciate all of your time and uh and the knowledge that you're sharing about these cool animals um, yeah this this has been fascinating and I've enjoyed it a lot. so thank you very much. Well, thank you, James, for having me. This has been really fun. Awesome. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. Thank you all very much for listening. I'm going to keep bringing you these stories from normal people just like you who have done extraordinary things. Everyone is an expert at something, and they have interesting perspectives on life and work, and the environment, and all the things that we care about. I'm going to keep bringing that to you. And I want to thank you so much for making this show possible. I also want to thank Emily Bratcher for producing this show. She does a great job editing. Really appreciate her. I want to thank John Chatelain. He did the art for the Six Ranch podcast. And Celia, soon to be Harlander, uh, she digitized that so that we can get it out there on the internet for you. I also want to thank Justin Hay for writing this original music and the beautiful whistling that you're listening to right now. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Please keep listening to the show. Write me a review if you feel like it. And just keep doing your thing and we'll all learn from this together. It's been fun and you know we're, we're just getting started.